ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. I ask you to lead us through what you'd want us to see from this section. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be starting at verse 9. Uh, Paul has been charging, Peter, uh, charging Timothy <laughs> with what he expects him to do, to be a good example, to lead. And now Paul is going to start saying goodbye to everybody. So starting at verse 9. Do your diligence to come shortly to me, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed unto Thessalonica, Cessern to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Paul and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for ministry. And Tychus I have sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when you come, bring it with you, and take and the books, and especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be you aware. Also, for he has greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of lions. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute Priscilla and Aquila, and the household of Onesimus, Onesiphilus. Erastus stood at Corinth, but Trothemus I have I left at Miletum sick. Do your diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, and Perdens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren, and the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. The second epistle to Timothy ordained the bishop of the church of Ephesus, was written in, from Rome when Paul was brought forth before Nero the second time. All right, so as we see, there's a whole lot of names in this section. And the thing about most of these names is there are quite a few names in here that the only place that they are ever mentioned is in this spot. Uh, so one of the things that I really know that I want to bring out from this section is these people are recognized 2,000 years later for what we don't know in many cases. So one of the things I want to bring out for us is when we are serving God, we will be recognized by those who need to recognize us, and God especially. Uh, you know, we don't know if some of these people were just simple servants. They did the cleaning. They took care of Paul. You know took care of Paul's needs, they went shopping for him. Who knows what it is because he does not say what they've done. He just says, these people. Now, some of them we're gonna talk about as we go through, but I just wanna bring that up. You know, There are so many people who think, well, I'm just too insignificant, nobody cares about me at all. Well, number one, God cares about all of his children. And whatever you're doing for God, God notices and will bring reward for it. So we wanna make sure we understand that as we go through this section. So he says, due diligence to come shortly unto me. So he is, Paul at this point is a little bit lonely. He's going to say, everybody has abandoned me. Either they've abandoned him or he has sent them away 
to do lots of things. So he said, Timothy, hurry. Come and see me. Uh, and he's needing a few things as he brings out as well. But he's saying, come and see me. And the reason why he's saying this is, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now, Demas is mentioned three times in the scripture. He's mentioned in Colossians 4.14, and he's in Philemon 20, uh, verse 24. So he is mentioned in most cases, he has said, he salutes you, he's been with me. But for some reason, when it came to standing with Paul in Rome, in front of Nero, he says, adios, Paul. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to, to go. And this is what he says. He loved, having forsaken me, having loved this present world. He's not willing, at least at this point in time, to die for God. And this is the thing that I have said to people. I would love to say that when tribulation and trials come, I'm going to stand and say, willingly say, kill me, I'm ready to go home. And I think I would. But we don't know our attitude until it is time to actually face it. All right. Demas been with Paul for quite a bit, quite a few of his ventures. When it comes to standing up at, to Nero, it's like, uh, Paul, I don't have to be here. I'm going. I'm going back home. We don't know why he. You know, all of it was when it faced, when it was time to face death. He's going. I'm not. I'm not ready for this. Paul had a little bit of a temper with people when they didn't do what he wanted. We'll look at when we get to John Mark. We'll look at. You know. We'll look at that. Uh, but you know, he stood up and was ready to die for people. So anybody who wasn't ready to die, he had a little bit of a problem with. Uh, when things get hard, you abandon me. You know, you're abandoning the faith. What kind of, what kind of person are you? This is his Phariseeism coming out. Okay, you know, as good as Paul was with grace and mercy, he was still pretty much a Pharisee at heart. I can do these things. Why can't you? I'm willing to die. You know, Demas, what's wrong with you? Know, What's wrong? And he doesn't really criticize me. He just says, he when it come, when when push comes to shove, he's he's leaving. So it's it's not saying that he went in and abandoned and didn't follow God. It's just Paul's a little irritated with him. You know, when it's time to die, he's abandoning. So just because he didn't want to die doesn't necessarily mean that he changed his belief. Not necessarily. He just failed a test of of willing to die for his belief. If we're truly serving God, we probably should be willing to, to face, face it because, and this is, what, this is what Paul says, he loved this present world. He wasn't looking to heaven, all right, which is his home. Now, Paul is making an accusation against him, but again, we don't know, did he go out and he still served God? You know, and when we get to, when he says bring Mark, we'll look at what, what happened because he did the same thing with John Mark on the first first uh, missionary trip. So yes, it's not saying that he went out and just abandoned the faith and forgot about Christianity. It's just when things got tough, he wasn't the tough got going, he was the tough got running. Okay, when things got tough, he, he ran off. And Paul got irritated by that. I mean, he really was. I mean, he was willing to do anything, be stoned, be you know, you stand in front of, you know, mobs against him. So it kind of irritated him when somebody would say, oh, not going to do this. All right. And during the first century, there were a lot of Christians that when the Pharaohs, when the, when the Caesar said, worship the Caesar or die, 
There were a lot of them that would go up, drop their grains and say, Caesar is Lord, and then go back and confess their sin and, and, and live. Good? No. Human? Absolutely. <laughs> Not looking at your final destiny? Absolutely. Uh, but weak at that point. And, you know, again, I'm not going to judge Demas on it. You know, I don't, I don't know for sure what I would do. I would hope that I would stand with Paul and die. But I'm not there. Yeah, I'm not there, and, I'm not, and I have not had to face that. I would like to think that my faith is strong enough to say, come on, come at it. You know, I'm not going to deny Jesus. And I think that would be the answer because I've followed him as long as I have. But it, we don't know. And this is Demas's answer. And so Demas went back to Thessalonica. Corson went to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. These are two people that Paul has raised up. Titus, of course, we know he wrote an entire book. He's one of his, one of his troubleshooters. So it appears that those two he sent away. He sent them a go. Galatia has problems. Dalmatia has problems. Go, go and take care of the churches. So he's getting rid of some of his key people who he really needs right now and saying, go take care of these churches. All right. This is what Titus was. Uh, Timothy was the same thing. He sent Timothy whenever he could not go back to a church. He would send certain disciples of his and say, OK, go back and take care of this church. They've got problems. Give them my greetings. I've been teaching you. You go teach them. So these two people have been sent away to, to go take care of churches. Then he says, only Luke is with me. All right. Only Luke, his physician, is with him. Um, why was Luke willing to stay there? I don't know. Maybe it was because he was a physician and he wasn't going to abandon his patient. He might have had, a, had that, that role that they considered him not so much a disciple, as a, but as a physician and a, and a servant. So we don't know. Maybe he was just saying, I'm willing to die. I don't care. Uh, we don't know why Luke stayed. All right. Um, and then it says, take Mark and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the mission ministry. Now, John Mark, this is John Mark. This is Barnabas's cousin. This is the John Mark that went with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary trip. And about halfway through said, this isn't for me, I'm going home. And... If you remember when they came back around and got ready to start the second missionary trip, and if you want to read about it, it's in uh, Acts. Uh, uh, I didn't write it down. Anyway, it's in Acts. <laughs> Acts 13. Um, so when it came time for the second trip, Barnabas, who's an encourager and, a, and, 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 tr and been real nice to people, he goes, we need to take John Mark with him, with us. Paul said, absolutely not. I'm not taking a quitter with me. The argument got so harsh between Barnabas and Paul that they separated and, and made two missionary teams. And Barnabas took John Mark with him. And Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul ended up, oh, who did he take? I can't remember who he took <laughs> off the top of my head. But he went, he went with somebody else. And so there were two missionary teams. So it's a picture of all things work together for good, even though it was not good that the two leaders argued and, and broke up, God ended up with two missionary teams going out into the field out of the, out of the problem. And then later on, we see this is not the only place, but there are several places where Paul said, oh, 
by the way, Barnabas, you were, you were correct. I should have been willing to give him, should have been willing to extend grace to him and, and see him because John Mark was later helping him out and they'd cross paths and he realized that he. So Paul, the preacher and apostle of grace, oftentimes had problems giving grace to people that he knew fairly well. You know, he said, give grace. He said, no matter what they do, give grace. And yet, when it came down to it, he had trouble giving grace at times, which is good for us. If, if Paul, who wrote the most, you know, most of the New Testament, had trouble do, you know, doing the things he was supposed to, it's kind of good news for us. Um, you know, Demas is one of those people. He's kind of a little irritated with him. You know, it's, he abandoned me at the time of need, but he's at least forgiven John Mark at this point. So he's telling Timothy, bring John, bring John Mark. He, he is useful in ministry. He is, he's, he's a good servant of God. He has grown. And this is an example for all of us. It's so easy for us to look at somebody's past and say, I am not going to forgive them. I am not going to give grace to them because of what they did back then and knowing them after what they've done. And so it goes back to what we talked about this morning, forgiveness, giving grace. When somebody doesn't do what we want them to do, we still understand that God has a plan for their life. And in this case, John Mark has been accepted by him. If he had lived long enough, he might have done the same thing with Demas. Uh, but he's not going to live much longer from after this, after this uh, letter goes out. Uh, and he says, Tychus I have sent to Ephesus. So this is another one of them. Paul had a whole group of people that he had discipled that he grew, and when there was needs, he sent them places and said, I can't be at all these churches, so my, I'm sending my disciples, the ones that I have trained up, to go take care of problems. They have been with me. They know how to answer. Uh, I've trained them up. They know what to say. They know, they know how to behave. They know, they know what I teach. They're, they're speaking for me when they come. So Tychus is sent out. He's a companion of Paul from Acts 20. He's also uh, mentioned in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4 and Titus 3. So he's, he's one of the key people that, you know, Titus, Tychus, and Timothy, quite interesting that they're all T's, uh, were the ones that he sent out all, all over the place when he needed, needed to send somebody. Those were his three key people that he would, he would move, move out. And then he says, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when you come, bring it with you. All right. So apparently he had an outer garment that he left in Troas, and he's saying, uh, it's getting a little cold here in, in Rome. Bring, the, bring my cloak. Uh, bring my outer cloak, because if you remember at those times, they wore their long, long uh, tunics, their long robes, but then they would wrap themselves in a cloak. And then when they would sleep, they would use the cloak as either cushioning against the rocks or if it was cold they wrapped themselves up in it and used it as a blanket and Paul's saying hey I left that cloak over there with um, um, with at Carpus uh, with Carpus bring my bring my cloak and he says and the books especially the parchments all right so books we all know what a book is we we read books all the time um, they had books Paul was well learned he was he was a Pharisee. He quoted from the scriptures. He quoted from the Greek authors. He, he was a well-read, well-balanced, uh, learned person. 
And he says, and especially the parchments, the scriptures. He wanted the word of God. Apparently, when he got to, got to Rome, he didn't have a whole lot with him. All right? And he's telling Timothy, get my cloak, get my books, and especially the parchments. Scrolls, book, well, books, books, scrolls, parchments. Parchments were specifically the name for the Word of God, the Old Testament. He had the prophets and the and the and the and the law. So he's basically saying, "Get my Bible," in our, in our terms. Bring my Bible to me. I'm wanting to study, study the Word of God. Uh, so this is what he's saying: Bring me, bring me my books, my scrolls. You know, uh, you know, bring me my. All my all my study materials, but especially bring me my Bible, is what he what he's getting getting to on here. So Timothy's got an assignment: get here quickly, bring my cloak. I'm, I'm getting cold, and bring me my study materials. All right, uh, this is the kind of thing that I would probably ask for if I was in prison. Give me my Bible, give me my concordance, give me, you know, give me give me the things I use to study because I need to, I need to study, and this is Paul's request. Here I am in prison. The only thing I really care about is to study so that I will be able to draw on God's word to expound upon others. Now, Paul was a Pharisee, and he was a good Jewish young man and grew up. He studied under one of the best teachers of their day. So he had, uh, had memorized the first five books of the Bible by heart. That was what you had to do as a Pharisee, and it's what the strongest students of in Hebrew school did. They memorized the first five books of the Bible. Now, we make it sound like it's really hard, and it, was a, and it is impressive that he did it, but you also, if you've ever listened to the cantors read the, the Old Testament in Hebrew, it's a very sing-song thing, so they're basically singing the song, and it's much easier to remember things when you sing them. So they would have this tune that they would sing the scriptures to, so that did make it easier. But it is still impressive that he memorized the first five books of the Bible. And he probably memorized most of the prophets, because he was, you know, he had gone to school and, and was one of the top students. He was one of the up and coming in the Sanhedrin. If he had stayed as a Jewish leader and Jesus hadn't interrupted, he probably would have been chief of the Sanhedrin, you know, because he was an up and coming uh, leader in, within the Jewish ranks. So that meant he had lots of scripture memorized. So he's saying, but now I want the rest of them. I, I, I want to have everything. And this is, you know, for me, I know a lot of scripture. I can teach with and without the Bible. I'd be able to teach God's word. But you know, it's a whole lot easier when I have the Bible in front of me. A whole lot easier to go back and remember the details of things by having the word in front of me. And Paul's saying, give me my stuff. I'm cold and I want something to study. I'm, I'm bored in this prison cell. Uh, and even out at the prison, when people get stuck in the, in the solitary confinement, what do they want? They want books. They're bored. There's nothing else to do. They want books. They want library books. They want Bibles. They want things to be able to keep their time occupied. Paul is in a cell, and he's saying, I want my books. You know, give me my books. I need to study. So he's going on in here, and then he warns him in verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil... The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be you ware also, for he greatly withstood our words. So here he's warning him about Alexander. We believe that this is the same Alexander that he talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
Uh, a coppersmith probably was an idol maker, and his business would, be, had a, would have been hurt by Paul's preaching. Where Paul went, uh, revival broke out, and when revival broke out, people turned away from their gods. So if you are making idols for people, and all of a sudden there's a revival and they're not buying your idols, you're going to be a little upset. And this happened more than once. In, in uh, Athens, it happened to him where they withstood him because the, the uh, idol makers said, you're hurting our business, you're turning people away from the God, from our God, and, and for them it was Athena. Uh, and, and they started this riot and he got arrested and, and because of the riot that they started, and the only reason they started a riot was not because they cared about the God. They cared about money in their pockets. How many times has problems occurred because people are worried about their reputation or their money in their pocket? You're hurting my business. All right? And this is what happens when God moves. If your business is something that is against God and sinful, you're not going to be happy with revival. All right? If, you're, if your business is the brothel down the street or the bar down the street or you're a drug dealer and people start getting saved and they don't go to your stuff, you're going to be a little unhappy with that, with that revival. And you're going to go after the leader of that revival. And this is what Paul said. Beware of Alexander. He did great harm to us. He opposed us. Now, Paul could have picked any one of the cities, I know, but somehow Alexander stood out more than most of the people. And it doesn't really tell us. It's only mentioned that one time in, in, in 1 Timothy, and we're, we think he's the same person that gave him a hard time. But it really doesn't go into details about what caused the problems. All he's saying is, if, you go, if you're going through there, be careful of Alexander. He, he's going to re probably remember you. He's going to remember me, so beware. He withstood us greatly. And this happens even in today's world. When a pastor's preaching and revival breaks out and people stop serving, serving some, some sinful area in their life, people get upset. When you, when you say this is wrong, and we see it even in marriages, even in, well, not marriages, but... Uh, fornication marriages where people are living together and all of a sudden one gets saved and says no we can't live this way anymore you'll have the other person get really upset at the pastor for teaching the gods against fornication you know, and it's like well I can only teach what God says you know, and, it, you know, and it, it happens people get irritated when their sin is called out some of them are powerful enough to cause problems <laughs> All right, Alexander was one of those that was powerful enough had enough influence in the, in the community to cause him great problems. All right? So he's telling Timothy, beware, be cautious. All right? And this is the thing about us. When God is telling us to do something, he is not just telling us to, to run out into the middle of an army with no armor on and no protection and, and yell and scream about God. Well, some of them he did. You know, uh, he told Samson to go out and gave Samson great strength, and Samson would go out with the jawbone of a of an ass and, and kill hundreds of people. Most of us aren't told to do that. All right? Gideon was not told to take your 300 men and charge the, charge the enemy. He was told, surround the enemy. Now, it's quite amazing when you think the 300 people surrounded 30,000 30, plus people. 
Uh, but that was their, their, their goal. Surround, the, surround that army. And then you broke open the pictures and had lights all over and make a lot of noise and make it sound like there's thousands and thousands of people and they got all scared and started killing each other and running. And, and then when they were running, they chased after them. 300 people chased after, after the running army that was scared to death. Because in the middle of the night, all of a sudden there's lights all over the, there's 300 lights all over the place and trumpets and, and noise. And you want to remember that for that period of time, you know, your whole army would not carry an arm, a, a, a light. It would only be one, one out of 30 or 40 people. So all of a sudden there's 300 lights around them. To them, that meant that there were tens of thousands of people around them. And then there's trumpets blowing, 300 trumpets blowing, and there was one trumpeter for, you know, for an entire division of 100 or so men. So for them, they're hearing you know, 300 trumpets going off. You know, to them, there's 30,000 people out there. And they woke up out of a dead sleep. So they, of course, they were panicked. So God had a great, great plan for them. But he didn't tell Gideon, okay, you take your 300 men and charge down into the middle of that 30,000 people and just fight until you can't fight anymore. That wasn't his answer. He told him to be wise. And oftentimes we're told to be wise. Now that doesn't mean that we're not going to stand in front of Nero and confess God and die. But it also means that we don't just act foolishly. And so there's a point where we obey God. Sometimes what God tells us sounds very foolish. Paul is going to go speak to, to Nero. Nero's a really nice guy. We've talked about Nero before. You know, he beheads Christians. He, he dumps them in tar and puts them on poles and lights them on fire as, 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 as uh, torches on the, on, the, on the circus. You know, he's a really nice guy. I mean, he's just who you want to stand before and give the testimony of God and say you're a sinner that needs God. But that is what God called Paul to do. And Paul was ready to do it, which is part of his problem with Demas. He goes, Demas is a chicken. You know, he is not ready to go home. He would rather live in this world than go home. And he ran away. So he's a little upset with, with Demas. And maybe rightfully so. I mean, I don't know. Demas, I don't know how old Demas was. I don't know how long he'd been walking with God. Uh, we don't know that if he went off and just started teaching somewhere else, you know, it's, and finally gave his life for, for God, we don't know. You know. Maybe he's only been a Christian for a year or two and is just not ready to die. You know, we don't know anything more about him. Um, and then he says in verse 16, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be held laid to their charge. His first answer, his first defense, his first apology before Nero. All right? He said, no one stood with him. It's kind of an interesting statement. He had no lawyer. He had no friends. He was the only one standing up in the courtroom to defend himself. He didn't even get a public defender to, to try to protect him. And he says, and this is where we see the grace of him. He won't forgive Demas for running away, but what does he say here? May God not put it to their charge. He's been far enough from the first defense that he's willing to say, all right, God, 
you, you, you don't charge them for it. They just weren't ready for it. He doesn't have that much grace for demons. It's kind of an interesting, interesting dynamic. I think he'd had a long enough distance between the first defense and this upcoming one that he kind of got over it and said, okay, they just weren't ready. I'm going to give them grace. Demas is one of those fresh scars on him. You know, Demas has been in prison with him and all of a sudden abandons him when it's time to face Nero again. So it's, when I think they're in the first defense, he probably had the same attitude. These guys all abandoned me. You know, and it's like God says, well, you just, you just leave them to me. You give them grace. And the scar for Demas is still too, too fresh. And now he's looking at them and saying, they abandoned me, but God has a purpose. God knows what he's doing. God, don't judge them for it. They just weren't ready. And this is where we as Christians need to be. When we get somebody that turns away from what we expect them to do or want them to do, we need to be ready to give grace if they don't act up act according to our expectations. For one thing, our expectations aren't what matter. It's God's expectations. And Paul understood this, but at the same time, he is just like every one of us. All of a sudden, this man abandoned him, and the only one left with him is Paul, and he's getting a little irritated. Now, all my disciples, I've sent a bunch out, and a bunch of them left me. Where are they at? Whoa, oh, woe is me. You know, woe is me. I'm all by myself. Everybody's abandoned me. And Paul was human. And it's kind of fun when we look at this, because I know some people, they want to put Paul on this great big pedestal. Nothing. Paul never did anything wrong. Paul never, never griped or grumbled about anything. Well, we do know in several places where he was human. This is one of them. You know, oh, everybody's left me. Get here quickly, Timothy. I need somebody to talk to. Paul's, you know, Luke's here, but, you know, I want others. And, you know, he's going through this whole process of... Oh, woe is me. And this is the man who said, I've learned to be content with much and, and with little. I've, I, I've learned to give grace and we live by grace and we, we're, you know, we're to exhort one another. We're to, we're to build up one another. And what's he doing in here? He's grumbling and complaining about everybody who has not been willing to stand with him in his trials. He is human. And I love that in fact that Paul, the apostle, was human. Because when I fail, I can go, well, I'm in good company. One of the greatest apostles was in good company, you know, did the same thing. I was talking to a pastor one day, and we were talking about the failures of Moses. And he's going, no, you're making it really bad. Moses wasn't that bad. They go, Moses was a hot-headed, angry man. And that gave him problems through his entire walk with the children of Israel. He comes off of Sinai and the people are worshiping an idol. And what does he do? He throws the Ten Commandments on the ground and breaks them. He gets mad at the people of Israel because they're, they're uh, calling for water. And God says, speak to the rock. And he beats the rock. And God says, because you did that, you're not going to go into the promised land. Now, I'm absolutely sure that from my belief is that God knew that he would never repent because you'll notice from that point on, Moses is always telling the people it's their fault that he's not going into the promised land. His whole attitude toward the people changes from that point on. And I think God knew that he would not repent, so he says, you're not going into the promised land because of this event. I think if he had repented, God would have said, okay, you can, you can lead the people in. But he knew the anger and the temper that Moses had. And so Moses was not 
a perfect man, yet he wrote five books of the Old Testament. He's the one that they're credited with, leading them out of, out of Egypt, the, save, the, the savior of them for, for, for Egypt. To, led them through the wilderness for 40, 40 years and has great history with the people. And yet, his anger led him to kill an Egyptian, which got him kicked out of the, you know, chased out of the country because, or he ran because he was afraid of being executed. Uh, his anger broke the Ten Commandments that God wrote. Uh, you know, I think I would take very good care of something that God wrote directly. And he was so angry, he threw them down and broke them and had to go back up on the mountain for another 40 days to get another set. Then it said on the second set, he had to write them. It wasn't written by the finger of God on the second set. So his temper cost. And so we see, and we see this all through scripture, that, you know, we see the weaknesses of people and see how they didn't fully trust God. And I love that Paul is human. He's not Superman. Now, he was quite good at what he did. He was very, you know, strong. He was willing to take and, and die for God. He was stoned. He was chased out of town. He was, you know, beaten several times. You know, he had a lot of strength in and of himself, and he trusted God. But he was also human enough to say, these people, you know, God, you know, I'm not happy with them. They're, they've abandoned me. Now, at this point, uh, the, after the ones that abandoned him on the first one is far enough away. He's going, okay, God, I've forgiven them. I've, I've heard some of the good things they're doing. I know that you, they're in your hands. I've, I've forgiven them. I've given them grace. And like I say, if he had lived long enough, he probably would have done the same thing for Demas if Demas didn't fall away. All right? Um, and then it says, verse 17, Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by my preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So here he's saying God was with me. This is the greatest thing. If God is on our side we are in the majority. Period. It doesn't matter if it, we're the only one standing. If God is on our side we're in the majority. Because God is stronger than anybody else out there. And you know what? His opinion is the only one that really matters. What is the worst they can do if God's on their side is they can kill me and send me to God. That's the worst. And so he understood this. He remembered the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who went into the fiery furnace and came out. He remembered Daniel going into the lion's den and coming out. He remembered Moses leading the people through the land, the prom, uh, to the promised land and all the miracles. He remembered Joseph you know, receiving dreams. He, you know, he remembered all of these people who stood with God. He would have remembered all the judges that stood up against great odds and got delivered. And go, God was on my side. And it says, and he delivered me from the mouth of the lion. Now, a lot of people debate, and I'm not sure which, what he's talking about. Did he literally mean he was delivered from being sent to the to the Colosseum and, and facing the death of a lion? Was he talking about Nero, who, who was considered a lion, you know, lion as well? And that either one of those is probably true. And it doesn't matter whether it's a symbolic one or he literally got delivered from the mouth of the lion. We're going to find, history tells us that he was beheaded. So he still was delivered from the mouth of the lion if it was a literal, literal one. But he says, God was with me. He strengthened me and he delivered me from death. 
whether actual or symbolic. It doesn't matter. Because Nero was the one that could put him, put him to death. And again, remember, Nero had nice ways to kill people. He, he would send him to the Colosseum to be killed by gladiators. He'd send him to the Colosseum to be killed by animals. He would decide that he just needed some torches on the Colosseum so that he could run his, run his chariots around the, around the circuit so he would light Christians on fire. Uh, he put them on crosses and crucified them. He did all kinds of things. So it could either way, it's going to be one of those things where he says, I was delivered. I was sure I was going to face death, and I got delivered on my first defense. And so he said in all of this, um, and it says, And the Lord delivered me from every evil work and preserved me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he said, I've been able to witness. Now, in one of the other letters, he mentioned that here he is locked up in Rome. And he said, I have two guards uh, strapped to me. And many of them have gotten saved. How would you like to bend the guard who doesn't believe in the one, one true God? You believe in a whole pantheon of gods. And you're strapped to this, guy, this crazy guy who doesn't do anything but preach at you for four hours. The four hours that you're attached to him, he's either preaching directly at you or preaching to the people coming to visit. And you're hearing all about the gospel. And many of them got saved. Nero actually got irritated with Paul because his military guys are getting turning to become Christians. So, you know, this is a problem. You know, for four hours, these guys have to listen to Paul preaching. And I don't know how long he slept. I'm sure he kept his sleeping to a minimum so he could preach even all night long to these guys. And he says, I have been talking and preaching to the Gentiles, even here in prison. And I think this is important for us when trials and tribulations hit, is our first question to say, woe is me, this is miserable, it's terrible, or is our first instinct to say, God, what have you got for me to do here? Now, I'm going to be the first one to admit, I'm not so good at always saying immediately, God, what is your plan? I usually get there pretty fast because I know that all things work together for good. But I, you know, our attitude should be, all right, God, I'm looking forward. You, you put me in this place. What is it that you've got me here for? I don't really like, I don't really like being in this dungeon. I don't really like the, the, that I lost my job. But God, who is it that you want me to, to minister to? Oh, you've got me in prison? All right, God, who, who, who is it that I'm going to be ministering to? Who's going to come to Christ because I'm here? This should be our attitude. When we go through hard times, our attitude needs to be what Paul says. It's been an opportunity to witness. I've been telling people about Jesus. If he hadn't been chained, chained to those guards, many of those guards would not be in heaven. If he hadn't been in Rome, in prison, many of the people would not have heard the gospel. When he stood before Nero the first time, Nero did not stand in court by himself. There would have been guards, there would have been observers, there would have been the other people waiting for their for their trials, every one of them heard the gospel message. How many of them got saved? We don't know. But he's saying, God, you put me in a place and I gave your message. How many people got saved because Paul was put into prison? We know many of the guards did. We know many of the house of Nero got saved. He said that in one of his epistles. He said many of the household of Nero have gotten saved. So they heard the message and Paul saying, well, God, you put me here. I'm going to take advantage of it. 
I'd rather be in Ephesus or in some of these other cities where I can have a little more freedom, but you put me here. I've got guards, I've got guards who can't go anywhere else. I'm going to make sure they hear the, hear the message. I've got the people that give me my dinner. I'm going, to feed, I'm going to make sure they hear the message. They're going to see that you are God. And this is what he's, he's cheerful about. Now, he's not cheerful about being in prison, but he's saying, God, look at what has been accomplished by being here. This needs to be our attitude when God puts us in a place, God, what is it that you want me to do? I am here. Who am I supposed to talk to? You know, you put me in this city, this state, this, this town. Who is it that I get to talk to? Because it's very important for every one of us to understand. There are people that I will never meet. There are people that you know that, that you get to meet all the time that I may never meet. I cannot reach them because I don't meet them. You, you, can, you can reach them because you meet them. We need to be able to share the gospel with everybody that was out there and say, this is what God says. And this is what's going to happen. And be able to share that with our loved ones, family, the neighbors of our loved ones. You know, it's very interesting that people watch us. Every one of my neighbors know that we go to church and that we're Christians. Partially because Sam knows everybody in the neighborhood, all around the neighborhood, but also because we go to church every day. I bring my Bible with me, and they know my schedule, and I've talked to many of my you know, neighbors myself. They know that we're Christians. And they look, and they watch, and they see what's going on, but they get to see a lifestyle. One of the things about the neighbors, they know the police don't come to my house every night like they do to three other houses on the street. You know, if those people were saying they're Christians, we are in trouble. You know, because the police are at their house frequently, at least once a week. Uh, some of them more often than that. You know, uh, but they look and they're going, police aren't at your house. There's not a lot of noise going on. There's a there's, there's good example of how to live. And this is what Paul is saying. I am here. I am lifting up God. And then he gets into his last little goodbyes. Salute Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anisiphoros. These are names that you might recognize. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila are disciples that, that were, met Paul. They're also the ones that took Apollos under their wings. Apollos was preaching the word of God who only knew the baptism of John, but he knew the Bible really well. And he understood repentance, but he did not know the gospel of Jesus. So Priscilla and Aquila went to the, went to the synagogue, the street corner, wherever it was, they met him, and they heard him preaching. They're going, hey, this is a man that really talks about God. They talked to him, and then they pulled him under their wings, and they taught him the gospel. And then Apollos became one of the great evangelists of that day and age, and he preached to the rest of the world. He was one of the great, great teachers. He was very eloquent. We don't know a whole lot about him other than where he crosses Paul's paths, but we do know that he was one of the great, and history tells us he was one of the great evangelists of that age. Um, and Priscilla and Aquila took him under their wings, and he, which means he was teachable. He was willing to listen to somebody else who gives him scripture and says, let's tell you the rest of the story. You know, you know that John was saying that there was going to be the Lamb of God that came. Let's tell you about the Lamb of God that came and, and, John, and saw John. Let us tell you about the rest of it. He listened, and he became a great evangelist for Jesus. 
as he went around teaching and written things. And Paul on a couple of occasions said, Apollos is there, treat him well. He knows the message. You know, give him, give him the respect that he needs and treat him well. Support him. So Priscilla and, Aqu- and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Who's Onesiphorus? Is Onesimus. The whole topic of the book of Philemon, the runaway slave that got saved when he, when he met Paul in Rome. So he says, greet these people, salute them. When you come around to them, give them my greetings. I miss them. Let them know that I'm thinking about this. Paul ends all of his books listing a whole bunch of people that he was praying for and that he was thinking of and thinking about. Everywhere he went, he's going, uh, Ephesus, okay, these are the people in Ephesus. I want to pray for them. I want to lift them up. These, are the, these have been my disciples. They're the, they're the ones that I left. Oh, Colossa. These are the people I remember in Colossa. Oh, uh, the, uh, Thessalonica. These are the people I left in Thessalonica. They were the ones that are left in charge of the church, and he's praying for them. He's mentioning them. He's saying, hey, when you go through those towns, say hi to these people. Remind them that I'm thinking about them. I'm praying for them. Who is it that we think about and pray about from our past? Now, this is something that's very important. We all should have people that have poured into our life. And I can think of several people over my lifetime that have poured into my life that when I think of certain areas that I used to live in, I'm going, okay, yes, I remember this person. I remember this person. I remember this person. And I remember this person. Now I can lift their names up and say, God, Keep them strong. Keep them following. Thank you for what they did in my life. And I hope that there are people that have left here that are remembering, yeah, I remember Chloride Baptist and and Pastor Ralph and some of the other church members. I remember them. They poured into my life, and this is where where I am, and this is I'm, I'm who I am today because of these people, and this is what Paul is saying. I remember these people. I remember Priscilla and Aquila. I remember Onesimus. When you when you go through their through their cities, greet them, say hello to them, tell them I've been thinking about them. And so these are very important. Uh, he says Erastus abode in Corinth. Uh, Erastus is only mentioned uh, one other time, so we don't know anything about him. Excuse me, three times. Excuse me. Go, go back to my notes. Uh, and he was used quite frequently uh, by Paul as well. So he's been with Paul several times. He's mentioned quite a few times in Acts. Uh, so he says he is in, he is in Corinth. He is, he is ministering to the church there. He goes, Trophimus, uh, he left in Miletum sick. All right. And this is another one of these things that I kind of get amazed when I talk to certain people that believe that every single sick person should be, should be healed. You know, well, Paul left, left one of his disciples sick in Miletus. He, you know, if Paul, who was praying for people and, and, and had people get healed all over the place, you know, Paul must not have had enough faith to, say, to, to heal this guy. No, it was just not God's will. How many people did Jesus not heal? Now, we know that Jesus did not heal every single person that he came in contact with. You know, he healed a lot of people. But the lame man at the gate beautiful of the temple that Peter and John in Acts chapters 3 and 4 saw, Jesus had to have gone past him. It said he laid at the gate every, every day for years. Jesus would have walked, had to have walked past him when he went to the temple. 
He wasn't healed by Jesus, but he was still there when Peter and John said, you know, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, arise and walk. And he got up and walked and leapt and, and celebrated God. People get healed when God wants them to get healed. People get healed ultimately when they die and go home. You know, and this is the, the thing about it, you know, I've had people get really upset, you know, I've gone to this guy, this guy, and this guy, and nobody healed, and I haven't gotten healed. I go, well, how about if we heal for ultimate, ask you for ultimate, oh yeah, sure, God, take this person home. No, I don't want that. <laughs> you know, um, I have a strange sense of humor where some people get, get nasty. <laughs> uh, but you know, God heals when he wants to heal. Paul said, I prayed three times for a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what the thorn in the flesh is, but it irritated him. Whether it was pain, his sight, you know, some sin, we don't know what his thorn in the flesh was, but it was bad enough that God said, uh, he, he prayed three times, and he said, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Learn just to abide under my grace. And there may be times where God just says, trust me. That is hard to do. When we're out there saying, God, I, I want relief of this pain. I, don't, I want relief from this person who's irritating me. I don't want to be around this person. And God says, well, you're just going to have to learn to give grace and accept grace and trust in me. And so here he's talking about, you know, Miletus. Miletum, um, uh, excuse me, left sick. And he says, do your diligence to come before winter. So he's asking him, get here quickly. Remember, he's asked for a cloak. It's fall in Rome, up in those hills. It gets cold. And he's saying, please get here. You know, do your best to get here by winter. I need that cloak. I want my study materials. And, I, and I'm getting cold at night, so I really need to be kept warm. This is from a time when when you were a prisoner, you did not get fed, you did not get anything unless you had people that brought it to you. You did not want to be in prison in Rome uh, because you might get some bread and water once a day, but that was about as much as you got. And there are still places in this world today when you go to prison, if you do not have anybody outside, you're probably not going to survive because they don't feed you, they don't give you clothes, they don't give you, give you clothes, uh, blankets and everything. And they might give you bread and water if you're lucky. They want to keep you somewhat alive. And, you know, but they don't give you their meals. And he's saying, get here by winter. I don't want to freeze to death. You know, I don't want to be cold for the rest of winter. Get here quickly. Uh, and he goes, Ebulus greets you, and Perdens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. Now, this is one of those places where I have it kind of curious. Everybody's abandoning him, but he says, these people are saying hi. Uh, it could be that these people are not leaders. They're not leaders in the church, and he sent all the leaders away, and these are people that are at least hanging out, but they're not the ones that are going to stand with him at the, at, the, at the trial. They're not the ones that are coming in. They're probably the ones sending him some food, sending him supplies that he needs, but that's about as much as they're doing. They're not coming in. They're not, they're not ministering. You know, they're not being seen with Paul. 
All right. They're, they're the ones that are helping him, but they're not leaders. So this is how I'm, re this is how I'm reading this section. These individuals say hi. You know, you know who they are, Timothy. You know, they're, you know, they're, you know, Tom, Dick, and Jane down in the, down in the, down in the audience. They, they're not really serving, but they come to church all the time. They're, they're learning. They're just learning to, to follow God. They're not ready to serve yet, but they're, they're here. And so I think that's what he's saying in here. All my, all my, all my right arm, right hand people have abandoned me. I've sent them away or a couple of them have just fled the scene. All right. Now, we don't know, and Demas may have been told by God to go somewhere else, and Paul is just hurt. You know, God may have called Demas away. We don't know. All we know is what Paul saw. And this is the thing we need to be very careful of. How we see things is not always the way things are. All right? Uh, if God has called us away, it means that God has called us away. Now, it may hurt people. When I left to come here to be pastor of the church, I left a lot of, lot of jobs that I did for a previous church. Not pastor understood, and we, we arranged everything. But you think about the hole that could have been left at that church. I opened all the doors on, on all the services. I made sure the heat or air conditioning was on. I closed up when it was done. I led the, I led the Sunday school department. I led the deacons. I did a lot of things at that church. And there was a lot of holes if, when I, you know, if, I, if I just left. When I left, we replaced, myself, replaced me with lots of people, one person in each one of the jobs that I did. But there are times when God says, this person is leaving. And the good thing when God takes somebody away that I've learned over the years, there's always somebody else on a good church to take their spot. Sometimes there's more than one person to take their spot. So sometimes it works out real good that God takes somebody away. You take one person away and two people take, a, take their spot. And you're going, all right, God, that was, that was God. good. I like that. And one of them leave and another one rises up in their spot. God takes care of his church. And this is the good thing. There is nobody who's indispensable in a church. Now, during a period of time, you may think that you are because of all the things you're doing and, and how important you are into a ministry. But I can tell you one thing about it. When, if and when God calls you away or takes you home or whatever it might be, somebody else is going to step up in that spot and take over. And they'll probably do as good or better job than you did because they'll go some other direction. I was talking with Gary about this. You know, Gary's very different in teaching the Sunday school than, than Bob was. There was nothing wrong with what Bob did or how he taught. Gary's just a different teacher. So you will learn things different than you would have from, from Bob. When I substitute, I'm very different from both of them. Okay? Uh, why? Because I am who I am. All right? And this is the thing that God will raise up leaders that are going to be taking their personality to apply what needs to be done. And this is the good news that we have. It's God's church. He will fill the positions. And then this last closing remark. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. He's saying, God be with you. Now that's quite a blessing. You know, Timothy, God's with you. His spirit is with you and his grace is with you. I love God's grace. And I, and I heavily on, lean heavily on the side of grace. 
I tell people if, I, on a, if I'm going to err between being hard and, and restrictive, I want to err on the side of grace. Give people grace over and over and over again. Because the letter of the law kills. That does not mean the law is worthless, that the rules are worthless. But it does mean that grace wins people. Grace changes people. When we give people law and rules, they may look like they've changed. They may even act like they've changed. But the question is, have their hearts changed? And the answer is usually no. They're just doing what they're expected to do. And they look good and everything, everything is, everybody will look at them and say, wow, that's quite a Christian. But when you give them grace, God changes us from the inside out. And that is when change is real. When we look back at our life and say, you know, I used to do such and such and such and such, and now I no longer do it. And I don't really remember choosing not to do it. It just happens. And, you know, this is something that happens over and over in my lifetime. There's certain things that I no longer do that when I used to do them, I had no problem with them. And then I just kind of said, okay, God, I want to follow you. And, and it drops out and I don't care anymore and I don't miss it. Uh, you know, and so these are the things that happens. God's grace living for us, keeping us, changing us. And this is how, if you want to see somebody changed, pray for them and give them grace. Now, I have said this many times. When you pray for somebody, especially if you're praying for them to change, what usually happens is God changes you. When I first got married many years ago, I used to pray, God changed my wife, and you know what? He always changed me instead of her. Now, I'm sure he changed her as well, but he changed me more than he changed her so that I accepted what it was that that I was being irritated by and I've watched this over the years God will normally change me and I'm sure that he changes those pe those people but when your attitude is that you're that God has changed you and you don't care about it anymore you don't notice when that changes because you're not caring and this is what's really important when we just let God change us and we give grace to other people and we're not trying to make them be like what we think they should be. All right? And the problem is people like to be told what to do to a degree. Give me the 13 steps to be, the, be successful in business. Give me the 10 steps to, on, on quitting drugs and alcohol. Give me the 20 steps to be a good husband or a good wife and I'll be okay. We like being told steps. If you follow these steps, you're going to be success, successful. Now, we can't ever keep those steps. Even when we want to obey those steps, we can't keep those steps completely. But we need to be able to learn to give grace and to accept grace. And the more we learn to give grace and accept grace, the better off we're going to be. God, they're in your hands. You change them, you don't change them, they're yours. Just give me the grace to accept what's going on. And this is sometimes very hard to do. You know, I'm a very punctual person. I like everybody being on time. When people aren't on time, it irritates me. You know, when I first started at this church, it was really bad because hardly anybody showed up on time. You know, uh, if 15 minutes late was on time for a lot of people. And Sunday morning, people were coming in in the middle of singing because they were just coming in at 15 minutes after, and I started singing. 
Even if it was just three or four of us there, we started singing. We started church. But, and God just had to work on me. Give them grace. Give them grace. Give them grace. Why? Yeah. Number one, they're not me. I was, I was raised in a military Germanic family that if you were late, you're in trouble. All right? Uh, that's inbred into me. It really is. And so I'm that way. I'm so bad that if I'm not 20 to 30 minutes early, I'm late. Yeah. And you'll have me apologizing. If I get here right on time and I'm early, I'm only 10 minutes early, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, I'm late. I'm the type of person, if I'm not there for some reason, people go, I wonder, I wonder where Pastor's at. He's not here yet. Matter of fact, it happened on one of the movies. I got called 30 minutes before the movie because I wasn't here yet. Because I'm always here 30 minutes to an hour early. You know, and there was just craziness. Uh, work got stuck at the prison longer than I was supposed to and, and had a hard time getting back here. So you know, all of these things we need to learn to give grace. And then he ends, he says, the second epistle to Timothy ordained the first bishop of the church of Ephesus. Timothy was made the, the head of the church of Ephesus. This is where he ministered. We're going to find that John, the apostle, ends up in Ephesus at, at the end of his life. You know, he's bishop emeritus. You know, he, he's, in, he's in, in Ephesus when he's old. And it says, it was written from Rome when Paul was brought before Nero the second time. And history tells us that when Paul went before Nero the second time, he was not delivered from death. He was beheaded. So in one sense, he was delivered. He went to heaven. His life was done. He, his ministry was done. And this is what he said to Timothy earlier in this chapter. I fought the good fight. I have finished. finished. I am ready to be poured out for God. I am ready to go home. And there will be a time when all of us are, should be ready to go home. Our days are done. We're done ministering. Now, I understand Paul when he said, I long to go home, but it is, it is better for me to be here ministering to the people. As long as I can minister to people, I want to be here on earth. When I can no longer minister to people, I want to be in heaven. We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look. Lord, we all want you to help us to remember that everybody is important in your kingdom, that you know your, your servants, you know who you want and how you want them to be meant, remembered. Help us to serve you and to give grace to one another. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and that's is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.